Hello and welcome to another edition of the IoT Show. The IoT Show is, uh, looks at insights and interesting topics and aspects of technology as applied to industrial organizations, specifically connected to the industrial Internet of Things. And today we're going to be talking about automation and the potential for disruption due to automation and its connection to the industrial Internet of Things. I'm joined today by three very wise and interesting guests. Uh, I've got uh, Sean Dotson from R&D Automation and Engineering in the US. Hi, Sean. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, I've got uh, Jordan Genesco from Atos. Um, uh, Jordan, you're based in uh, New York, I believe, uh, on the east uh, coast. No, of the Vienna. US. Vienna. Uh, and I've got Tom Raftery from SAP, who's based here in, in Europe with myself. I'm based in the, the London production headquarters. So welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Thanks. Hi. So um, I, I think the first thing is, let, let's just uh, introduce each other. Um, Sean, why don't you go ahead and just explain yourself and your organization, what do you do? Sure. So my name is Sean Dotson. I'm the president of R&D Automation and Engineering. We're a custom machine and robotic work cell manufacturer here in the United States. Um, we build machines that uh, assemble medical device, uh, defense and ammunition, uh, consumer goods, pretty much anything. All But all of our machinery is custom made, purpose built for that customer. Great. Thank you. Um, uh, Jordan. Yeah, so my name is Jordan Yanechko. I'm with the company Atos. We're uh, a fairly large IT company, 100,000 people worldwide, and a substantial portion of what we do is for the manufacturing industry, so discrete and continuous. Um, I personally am in the centers of excellence and also in a group we call the scientific community that does a lot of work in the area of trends and, and innovation, and I'm involved there in both data analytics and robotics. Great. And uh, Tom? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I work for SAP. Uh, SAP is a large software vendor. Uh, we sell back-end systems primarily to larger organizations more typically. Uh, I, my, my role is uh, global VP, uh, futurist, and more recently, innovation evangelist. I was an IoT evangelist, but there's been a bit of a little reorg in the company, and now I get the broader title of innovation evangelist. And to be honest, I think it, it suits what I've been doing better anyway. Uh, IoT by itself, uh, as we know, is kind of, uh, if, I want to, if I want to be provocative, I would say useless. Uh, it's, it's only when you couple it with the other technologies in the, in the innovation ecosystem that you can actually get results out of it, the whole analytics, machine learning, you know, all those kinds of things, the edge processing, all that kind of stuff. Great, thank you. And um, so I suppose, you know, what I like this topic to uh, to focus on is is really the the age of automation uh, we hear a lot about automation uh, in, in the press uh, and from various pundits including myself and I, uh, some of uh, Tom's former colleagues uh, what exactly is automation in the in the world of the IOT Tom why don't you start us off sure I mean it it, it it takes on many meanings depending on the, the industry, um, but if I think of uh, someone like one of our customers, Caterpillar, for example, they, they've rolled out a big uh, automation project uh, across their whole manufacturing uh, system where they're, they're connecting up uh, all, the, all the machinery in their plants and they're also connecting up their plants. 
so that they can now, they've like, I think, nine manufacturing plants globally. And they're now able to compare, as they said themselves, apples to apples. They're able to look at, uh, initially they're doing 14 KPIs uh, to, to cross-compare the different uh, plants, but they're going to roll that up to about 200 different KPIs. Uh, and the, the automation is across a number of different things. It's along, obviously around manufacturing, but they're doing it kind of almost end to end. What they want to get from the system is they want to get the workers augmented so that the workers have more information to work with. They want to get the customers connected. So now customers buying from Caterpillar can actually buy from their phones. Uh, and they want to be able to, as I say, get the kind of whole digital boardroom thing where they get all the information right up to the boardroom. So it's factory floor right up to, uh, or shop floor right up to uh, uh, management suite. Great. Uh, Jordan, what, what is it to you? Saying, um, I think if you go back ten years or so, um, and you looked at what was auto, you know, what were what were people doing when they were talking about automation? They were focusing on the asset. They were talking about how they could do something with PLCs or embedded programming uh, to get the asset. Uh, doing what it is that they wanted to do. Now it's much more integrated into everything that's going on in the rest of the company. It really is taking that information out of just that asset and seeing how it integrates into the different processes going on to understand how it can maybe be integrated with either warehousing or with, you know, again, all of the ERP systems and the other sorts of support uh, infrastructure that is outside of the area of the standard um, uh, process area and production facilities and how to better take advantage of what's going on. So I think it is that transition of sort of looking down towards the asset and now looking towards across both horizontally and vertically with the rest of the organization. Right. Sean, you're at the sharp end. You're actually making um, a lot of this equipment. What, what is it to you? What is automation to you? Um, well, as Jordan said, you know, we're, we're at the asset end. We're, we're the ones who are building that equipment and uh, you know, they're actually producing you know, the items. And, and in fact, Caterpillar is one of our you know, customers' customers. So we, we, we see a lot of those trends being pushed down our way. Um, but, but more and more, we are being asked for that data collection, for that SCADA uh, inter interface into, into their production systems to get operating efficiencies. Um, it's it's they're wanting to know you know how well is the machine working and you know maybe how well is it working for a particular product perhaps it works much better for for one SKU than another SKU and they should utilize this machine more for SKU A versus SKU B so it, it not only allows them to get just general production data and 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 connectivity uh, and float that, that that information up to upper management but it allows them to make better decisions as to what products they're going to be producing on what types of machinery. Um, so these, these are requests that we're getting more and more from, from our customers. Great. Uh, Alan, I mean, if, you if, gave a good example. Sorry, Tom, you were, you were saying something. Yeah, if, if I could give you quite a, a practical example uh, of, of the kinds of things that it, that it can help with. I, I shot a video at the Hanover Fair last year uh, where we had a demo of a flow control valve, so very typical uh, industrial instrument. And these flow control valves have little LCD screens on the front of them where they capture information and they keep that information for maybe a minute, maybe two minutes, maybe three or four minutes. But then it's lost after that, it's overwritten. But we were able to connect a little uh, a standard thing called a bullet onto it, which can take the information from that sensor and push it up to the cloud or push it to an edge device. And then if some 
uh, some, some thing that the flow control valve sensors are measuring, if they go out of tolerance, it can send automatically a message back to the back end and kick off a uh, kick off a service ticket or kick off an alert to a manager or something like that. So right there, that's a very simple, very practical example of the kinds of things that you can do with automation. You can take, you can capture data that's never been captured before. And you know, if it's a temperature sensor, you, you, you want to have some kind of edge processing there typically because if it's saying, you know, everything is fine, everything is fine, everything is fine, everything is fine, you don't want to be capturing that information. You don't want to be storing it for two or three years. You know, it's the exceptions that you want to capture and then say, oops, something's happening. Now we need to make something, you know, happen in response to that. Yeah, Jordan, yeah, have you got any examples yeah. of what your customer's doing? Oh, well, that's uh, perfect examples are connecting sensors and having a better understanding about what's really going on down towards uh, towards the assets. Yeah. And the idea that you are now being able to combine a whole bunch of different assets now in different ways. Um, we've mentioned a couple already in the show, being able to compare similar production lines and understand, OK, what am I doing better on this? You know, if you're taking care of uh, overall equipment efficiency, OEE, and you understand that in this facility you're always, you know, X percent better than another, you can start actually doing some analysis through some of these connected devices and understanding where the bottlenecks, where do I need to have lessons learned? How can I exchange information that's going on in, in, in these sort of complex areas? So the idea that you're taking advantage of automation for either A, getting more information, making that available and embedding that into how you're making an operationally efficient organization and continuous process improvement. That's the, those I think are the key low hanging fruit that if, if your company isn't doing that yet, that's definitely where you need to be because a lot of the interesting things that are uh, coming up soon with business reinvention, smart services, turning your products into something where you're, you're actually selling it more as a service are only possible after your company gains those sorts of skill sets that allow you to, uh, to integrate those activities. Right. It, it, one of the things that people talk about is, you know, the, the um, impending um, escalation of use of robotics and, and those types of technologies within the uh, production lines and automation systems that have been used in the past. W what are some of the implications of that within this world of automation, industrial IoT? Um, Sean? Well, um, you know, it, it's interesting. One of, our, one of our larger suppliers of robotics is Fanuc Robots. Uh, they have recently released some, uh, some pretty amazing software, actually, called ZDT, Zero Downtime. Uh, and it's, and it's uh, a software package that runs on the robot that also that connects out to you know, the, the rest of the network. And it, it, it's analyzing uh, temperatures, current uh, forces on all, all the joints, on all the motors, and all the sensors that are inside the robot. And it's doing predictive analysis as to uh, you know, when, hey, maybe joint, the motor on uh, joint three is, you know, starting to creep up there on current and, 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 and it's trending it and finding that, hey, you know, it, it might be failing here in the next uh, six months. Um, and some of the larger manufacturers, primarily a, a lot of the auto manufacturers, um, are even tying that into their, their, their maintenance systems so that the robot can say, look, my joint three is starting to, to uh, uh, fail um, and it's going to fail probably in the next three months and you have a maintenance window three weeks from now. And so I'm going to go ahead and assign myself to have that motor replaced um, in, in that period of time. So it's a it's a really powerful tool. Um, 
It's also very useful. It records everything. So when one of our customer calls us and says, we don't know what happened. The robot just crashed. We can go back and look and say, well, you know, actually it shows here that somebody changed a variable at uh, 11.59 p.m. last night, and that's why it crashed. So you may want to go have a discussion with your, you know, your third shift operator as to, as to why they were changing those. <laughs> Tom, I mean, what what sort of examples are you seeing out there in the world of sort of connected robotics and automation systems? Yeah, no, very very similar to what Sean said. Uh, a lot of the use is uh, using um, digital manufacturing software to make sure to talk directly to the robot, so that you can have your ERP system and your sales system talking directly to the robot, so you can get down to kind of the the the, the ideal lot size of one that uh, you know people have talked about for a long time is now actually becoming a reality. Right. And <clears throat> then the the other side, uh, as Sean rightly pointed out, is the whole idea of uh, predictive maintenance of uh, making sure what you know what you call your critical bottlenecks, your your gateway machines, uh, don't fail. You have maximum uptime on them so that they are constantly sending out the information, you know, from all the different sensors. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Run those through your machine learning algorithms so that you know that if something does go out of tolerance, you know part x is going to fail with you know 87 percent probability by next thursday at three o'clock so that you if you don't have parts in stock you can get them in stock fast so that you can replace it so that your machine doesn't go down or if it's down it's down for the minimum possible time you, you get your first time fix rates way up that's that's the important thing and you get your downtime way down so that your you, like i say your critical bottlenecks aren't bottlenecks that you don't yeah, run into manufacturing problems Right. I mean, do you see the same thing, Jordan? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, although I do sometimes get worried because there are a lot of companies that um, are a little nervous. They don't think they're advanced enough yet to start using you know, machine learning and advanced intelligence sort of uh, concepts. I think some of, sometimes some of the easier things are just having a better approach to how you get robots to interact with existing machines, loading and unloading milling machines or lathes or other sorts of things, making sure that you understand how you could use you know, automatic guided vehicles in your in your warehouse or some of the things that are, you know, falling within to that robotics category and letting you be more flexible with how you do these uh, initial sort of steps. It lets you uh, better understand how these uh, interactions take place. Sometimes you can have a more uh, advanced view about what a machine is. A machine isn't necessarily only one asset. Now, uh, it's a combination of different uh, robots and machines working together to perform a task. And as you're trying to decrease, you know, lot size of one is talked about a lot with Industry 4.0, for example. Um, robotics is a way of sort of gluing together different subsets of processes that let you deal with personalization or smaller lot size numbers. Right. And, and Sean, I, I remember speaking to you some time ago about the changes that are happening with the advent of robotics in this sort of connected world. It's changing the way that you design and 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 consider the, your machinery, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, the you know tr tr traditionally in, in automation over the last uh, you know, twenty some odd years, um, there was always a mixture of robotics and what we call hard automation. And typically, hard automation was was always a little less expensive than than robotics. Um, but of course, when you're designing custom, you know, hard tooled automation, uh, you, you know, getting that right the first time is, is always a challenge. So you're, there's a little bit of iterative processes there, especially when you're doing custom design. Um, but uh, I mean, just quite honestly, the commoditization of, of, of robots and the intelligence and, and the lowering of the price, um, 
has really driven us to to start using more and more robots. Anytime we have more than about two axes of motion, we're, we're throwing a robot on it because um, not only of the price and the flexibility, but the the connectivity that it has to other devices. Um, I mean, they're they're really you're, you're, you're throwing several mini computers onto a machine at that point and getting that processing power shared between all those all those small little processors. Um, so it's uh, you're definitely going to see more and more robotics in places that you saw traditional hard hard tooled automation. Now, I think Sean's pointing out something important, and that's that the price point is coming down drastically on some of these things. And the flexibility is something that a lot of people aren't taking advantage of. And it's not necessarily only flexibility on the robotic side, but it's also flexibility on the software side, how to deploy new uh, programs, how to test and verify, make sure that it's doing what you want it to do. Um, and again, that's sometimes a new skill set that some existing industries need to, or existing companies in, in some industries uh, need to approach in a slightly different manner. Right. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that, that is most exciting about robotics, that it lets people have a new way of sort of uh, talking about job security and maybe being able to exist in, in some countries where it used to be more expensive to produce. Now you can actually take advantage of these things and, and save some jobs, which I know a lot of people are worried about in the opposite direction with automation. Right. Another thing, Alan, uh, we're, as we're talking about connectivity <clears throat> and, and having connected devices, uh, we're seeing the move to product as a service in the product as a service world as well. Uh, and that, you know, for manufacturers, that goes both ways. They can either be a customer of, of a, a product as a service where, you know, the device they're using, they don't actually own. They're just paying for the utility of it. Uh, it may be a big air station for compressed air and they're paying by cubic meter of air or something like that. Or they might be the manufacturer themselves giving it to a customer. And in that way, they are, so we're getting different business models, so they're now being paid, not upfront asset, but it's, it's almost like cloud computing. It's, it's, you know, you're going for the customer for life kind of thing. But also, when you're doing that, when you have the connected device out in a customer's place, you're getting information back from it, real-time information on how it's actually being used in the wild, the kind of information that you never got before unless you sent a service engineer to site. And having that, being able to get that data back and feeding that into your R&D division allows you now to produce, you know, the next version of the device uh, and, and uh, have it optimized for how the device is actually used, not how you thought it was used. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm interested in this topic of, um, I, it, you mentioned it, Jordan, you know, about um, the disruption that is potentially caused or, or not. And I, I think you, you touched on it as well, Tom. Are these automation technologies and their connection to the industrial internet of things, are these disruptive technologies? I mean, will, do, how will people adapt and how, how can they be con consumed or assimilated? How about you, Sean? I mean, what do you, what do you think? Um, I, I, I think they're certainly innovative and all. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I would really call them disruptive at this point, though. Um, they're changing the way we're thinking about automation, the way we're connecting machinery. But when I use the term disruptive, it's, to me, it's it's a it's a step function and in, in change. And and I don't think we're quite there yet. I think once you start combining some of AI and and, and getting into then a little bit more connectivity um, between the robots, um, that's going to be more disruptive. Uh, there's a couple companies working on some. Uh, you know, 3D bin picking, visual bin picking uh, applications for robots now. So uh, you, you tell a human operator, hey, 
pull the teddy bear out of this bin. They can look past the, the, the boxes and the wires and all that and see a little furry thing at the bottom and then pull the teddy bear out. You tell a robot to pull a teddy bear out. Right now, we're having to teach it what is a teddy bear? What does a teddy bear look like? Um, and uh, right now they're, they're working with some, some vision companies that have some artificial intelligence that you just feed it thousands and thousands of pictures of teddy bears. As we all know, they could be brown or white and you know, really furry or less furry. And it learns what a teddy bear looks like. So now you're able just to throw this bin in front of it and say, get the teddy bear and it pulls the teddy bear out. So um, that to me, that's true disruptive technology there, and and, it, and it's coming. It's just it, it hasn't hit the marketplace, uh, you know, as a as a ready to go product quite yet. Right. I mean, Tom, are you seeing that same trend? Is it is it not quite there, or or are you seeing something different? Um, you know, I I think uh, William Gibson put it well when he said the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Um, so. Uh, yes and yes and no to uh, avoid answering your question because yes I am seeing it uh, and yes it is here but not everywhere um, so several of our customers are already deploying these kinds of things uh, and, and these kinds of technologies uh, so uh, yes and no <laughs> is how I could answer that I think. Uh, Jordan what about yourself? Yeah so going back to the idea of disruption in, in general I think one of the things to keep in mind is that um, these different things going on affect different parts of the organization at different speeds. Um, so it might be that the, the, the planning team has a different view about how disruptive, disruptive this is compared to, for example, the quality team or the people that are responsible for, uh, you know, third shift, those people at 11.59 at night who have decided to change a variable for some strange reason. Everybody always blames the third shift. Um, I think the, the idea of disruption right now is is certainly taking place in the minds of a lot of people that are uh, thinking about network connectivity and how to get this data prepared in a way that you can take it, start taking advantage of advanced analytics. And I think that's where they're starting to take maybe a little more, or, or maybe they're starting to have uh, a little more respect for the IT department, which they didn't already always have because of some of the advanced security models that need to be put into place and things that weren't necessarily sort of the sweet spot about what the OT team was doing when they were actually doing a lot of IT savvy sorts of activities. I think a lot of the a lot of the step change that we see going on right now is the idea that the OT departments are really increasing their game with their ability to understand or not understand, but but invest more time with some of the IT things to understand that they will be connecting this up to the rest of the organization. And how does that impact what they're trying to do? And so it might not impact everybody's job in, in the same immediate way, but I think as time goes on, we'll see different parts of the organization uh, adapt in, in different sorts of ways. I mean, do you have any advice for companies that perhaps have employees that are concerned about these elements of disruption? Because obviously there's more rumor and speculation than actually facts in, in a lot of these topics. I mean, what advice would you give companies to, to help them deal with the potential concerns that some of the employees may have, that the sort of evolution of these um, in industrial <clears throat> internet technologies and automation technologies as they as they start to wend their way into the infrastructures. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, it would be interesting. I was going to say it'd be interesting to hear what Sean has to say. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, and and, and funny enough, I, I was just invited to speak at a um, a human resources convention here in, in in Florida recently. It was about uh, state of talent, and how to retain your talent, how to find good talent, and I, and I thought, why are they inviting an automation guy to a to a uh, you know a, a conference about human talent and all? 
So my joke was, you've heard all these great, these great people talk about how to retain your talent. I'm here to tell you, you don't need talent. You just need robots. But <laughs> in reality, what, what, what really is happening is, um, you know, the RIA has a lot of data on this. If you look, as robot sales go up, unemployment actually falls. So um, it's an inverse relationship between the two. Um, there, there's articles as we see in the media all the time, robots are going to take our jobs. And then by the same, uh, media outlet, three days later, you'll see another article is, well, the robots are gonna take our jobs, but this is a good thing. You know, we're going to create these, all these other jobs. So, um, you know, what we have found and, and the data supports it is, is that as companies become more automated, they're, they actually are hiring more people. People are not, are not putting automation in and laying people off they are putting automation in because they cannot find enough good talent. There's, there's, we've all talked about the skills gap that's looming. It's a real thing. Um, we as an automation company even have a hard time finding employees to, to build the automation for other companies. So um, there's, there's no danger. Uh, we're going to have jobs. Um, our titles may be different. There may be new things. Um, but you know, automation really can't be seen as, as a threat to jobs. It's not going to replace them. It's just going to change them. Right. right. I mean, Tom, is, I mean, Tom, is the world uh, ready for this change? I mean, uh, what, what is sort of your viewpoint? Um, I, I'm in violent agreement. Um, <laughs> uh, absolutely. The, the, is, is the world ready for the change? Uh, that's a different question. Um, I, I think, I, think uh, I, I always say technology is easy. It's, it's people that are hard. Um, and I, I think uh, a lot of the changes that we're going to see, and we're going to see increasing pace of change as well, uh, will have will, will will be difficult for some people. And uh, organizational development and change management tells us that the best way to make changes like this is to involve people from the get-go, and have them involved in the decision-making process. And then when they are involved in the decision-making process. Uh, they, they find the change easier to deal with. It's only when change typically is uh, top-down mandated that people find it harder to deal with. Like I say, if they've been involved in the decision-making process, they're already bought in, they're one of the stakeholders and feel that they've contributed to it. And then, you know, it's easier, it's easier to, to uh, roll with. Right. Jordan. Uh, this is exactly the same conversation I had with the company last Thursday when they were um, uh, visiting us in uh, um, uh, some of our facilities. It was th they're in the process. They're in Switzerland. They're in the process of right now building a new plant, and they were talking about how they need buy-in from their existing uh, uh, employees because they can't just sort of say, "Surprise, we have a new plant that's forty percent smaller." How does this affect your job? It needs to be something that's continual. Not only because they need that you know sort of acceptance from the organization. Um, but also because that organization has a lot of know-how and understanding about what their company does. You know, what are the crown jewels? What makes them so unique? Why are they being successful today with what they're doing? And they don't want to lose that. They don't want to have some sort of big bang approach where, you know, just a couple of strategy people and management makes a decision and then just sort of bang, 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 pushes it through. Um, they'll lose a lot of expertise, they'll lose a lot of people, and they won't have that sort of acceptance for what's going on. It can be it can be somewhat dangerous not to try and have this as a broad discussion. And in fact, what you'll see right now, we, we're involved in a lot of R&D activities with some universities and some, some things that are uh, given federal grants in different countries. And you'll see that very often those are combined with social studies, uh, things that are more in an MBA approach, not, a man not purely manufacturing, 
but really analyzing how do you have that change management approach and how do you deal with people who are in the organization. Right. Very interesting. I mean, what, what are the sort of practical steps that um, you'd advise companies who are, who are perhaps at the sort of beginning sort of phases of looking at greater automation and, and connectivity to the internet or internet of things, what would you, what advice would you give them, Sean, uh, as to what to do next and how to get get more involved in in uh, in looking at these types of technologies and, and pro processes? Well, I, I think Jordan hit the nail on the head when you got to involve your your people, um, and, and Thomas alluded to that as well. You, you've got to get your factory level operators involved and and, and talk to them about. You know, what processes really work and, and what don't? We're, we're invited into factories all the time, and we're say we're, we're told, you know, this is the problem right here. Look at this section of, of the process. Here's here's your, here's the issue, and we ask all the time, can we look upstream? And then they always say, well, why are you looking upstream? Like, well, because this might not be your problem. Your problem may be upstream. So let's go look to see if we can solve that problem. So be open to uh, what you think is the problem may not really be the problem. Um, also, you know, I, we recommend to people is, is start small. If you don't have automation, um, you, you need to look at something on, on a smaller scale. Um, there's a skill set that needs to be built up uh, by, by your people, um, not just not just your operators, but your mechanics, your IT departments. Um, you, you, you don't want to jump in with $10 million worth of automation if you have nothing uh, because you're, you're destined to fail at that point. So start small. And then once you have the success, you know, go to the next larger process, and then you know, keep keep continuing on at that point. But uh, you know, don't, don't don't try to jump in from zero to one hundred immediately. Yeah, Jordan, have you got anything to add to to the, those sage words of advice? <laughs> I would incorporate those sage words of advice into a general. What I've noticed with a lot of customers that we did talk with. They obviously want to have a structured approach, return on investment to understand, okay, what are the benefits that I get if I invest this much money? How much time is the payback period? Um, all of that's very important, but it's not only a question of operational efficiency and do I have X more widgets produced in, uh, in one hour? It's a question of what skill sets do I need to bring up? It's a question of, is this enabling me to go through some final, uh, some final steps that improve quality? Um, the return on investment calculation that you do isn't just a question of production speed or other sorts of things. It includes soft skills. It includes where your vision is for what you want to be doing in the next one, three, five years, and what this is for a step going in the right direction. I, uh, again, there are some things where the automation experts say automate everything, and it's not cost effective to do that. Um, but the, I, I don't think there are many industries left where you could just say don't automate anything and you don't have to worry about it. You need to get those skill sets. You need to start incorporating that into what's going on. And you need to take that holistic approach about saying it's not just about automating down towards the asset. It's taking a look at the process and it's taking a look at all the integration that goes on. Horizontal, vertical, uh, again, warehousing, supply chain management, ERP systems, partners, design, process design. It's, it's, it can be wonderfully complicated. Uh, but it also needs to start wonderfully easy with a very clear understanding about where your benefits are and what you want to get out of the first step and the next step and the next step. Right. Tom, how about yourself? 
I'm smiling here listening to Jordan talking about uh, automate everything and uh, uh, reading the, the stories about the what they call the production hell that the Tesla Model 3 line is going through at the moment because they tried to automate everything and they went too far and they had to actually back out of it and, uh, and take out some of the robots that they put in there. But um, in general, I think uh, for organizations, uh, a... a, a I think the, the advice that we typically give them is to run a few pilots first, um, uh, just to see, you know, where we'll go through maybe even a design thinking session first to 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 uh, come up with the ideas for pilots, which would what to pilot, and then run a few pilots and see what where you're getting your best results from, and then work from there. Uh, we we tend to say to people, you know, uh, start small but think big, and in that way. Uh, it, it, it's kind of a, um, a safer way to approach some of these projects. Uh, and, you know, if you're running pilots that way, then uh, you, you, you can see early on without expending too much uh, where things might work and where things might fail. Sean, when companies think about uh, the scaling sort of uh, principle, you know, do they need to take into account where they might go to? Or is that something that you know, these days is less important. Scaling is, is less of a, a challenge than it used to be. Uh, no, no, I mean, they, they absolutely have to take that into account. Um, you know, we, we, al we always ask people, what, we, what are your production volumes currently? And what are your production volumes going to be next year, three years, five years from now? Because this is equipment that, that lasts five, 10, 15 years in some cases. So you don't you don't want to buy a piece of equipment that is certainly far more expensive and, and, and overreaching for your current needs, but you want it to be scalable and you want it to be you know, adaptable to that growing need. Um, we're, we're seeing more and more uh, the change of pace of products is is much more rapid nowadays than, than it used to be. You might run the same the same model product for three or four years. And, and now we've got companies that are, that are changing models every six months. Um, so you definitely need that scalability. You definitely need that variability. And, then, and that's where, touching on my previous point, where robotics come in. They are very flexible. Uh, they're redeployable. Um, even a matter of you know, taking them completely off one machine and putting them onto another machine. Um, so they, they definitely, you definitely need to look forward on, on, on where you want your company and, and your production volumes and, 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 and range of products to be in the future. Um, otherwise, you're going to end up with a, a piece of machinery after a couple of years that's, that's useless to you because right. uh, you uh, uh, strategy. Sorry, the, the, the software infrastructure, though, doesn't have the same, some of the same remits, does it? Uh, uh, you know, Tom, you know, what, what we've heard in previous shows is, it's much easier to scale the software. In, well, when I say easier to scale, it's much more practical to scale the software infrastructure than it is to scale some of the, the physical assets that uh, Sean deals with. I mean, is that is that something that creates a bit of contention in, in what uh, Sean's talking about? Um, probably, yeah. Uh, we're 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 a, a software only organization, as you know. Uh, we don't we don't do any hardware, so. Um, it, 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 uh, it, that's that's not something I'd be hugely um, uh, qualified to speak on. I mean, I, I can speak about the software side of it and how easy it is to scale that, but not the hardware and not the, the conflict that arises between the abilities to swap out hardware and swap out software. Having said that, I mean, uh, yeah, 
we're seeing a big shift in software as well. Uh, the kinds of uh, ERP software that we have been selling in the past is actually quite difficult to swap out uh, traditionally because, you know, it's, it's a big project to put in, the, put in an ERP system, uh, and usually organizations uh, will try and avoid having to swap out an ERP system, um, you know, unless it's every 10 or 15 years, the kind of lifetime that Sean was talking about. Uh, but with the move to cloud-delivered solutions, now that becomes easier because now the software vendor is responsible for keeping the software up to date, and the idea of swapping out an ERP system becomes, you know, redundant. Right, right. Jordan, I mean, are you seeing anything on that side? Oh, definitely. So, I, I mean, it's, it's a complex world that we're talking about right now. If you get into the idea of, you know, can you take advantage of the fact that cloud can scale faster than any physical hardware can? Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, the, I, I think some of the tension that you get between the operations department and the IT department is very often that um, there are so many different standards out there uh, that are still relatively new and fresh. You're not exactly sure if they're things that you can rely on. Um, as Sean was saying, if you've got a product that you bought for your shop floor that you want to work for the next 15 years, um, there are some problems that uh, that sometimes people see if, if the software is changing so quickly that all of a sudden what they had working won't anymore. And I think that's one of the, actually, since this is the IoT show, it's worth pointing out that this is one of the reasons why industrial IoT is going to look different than smart homes and some other things, where the products you buy usually are only going to be used for a year, two years, and then you'll replace them. You know, maybe there's an exception with your oven or your refrigerator, um, but there's a lot of home products that just have a have a shorter time span. And so we, we definitely see the market playing out differently for the industrial IoT world than we do for smart homes, even if, though, even if there are similar sorts of constraints that you need to think about for bandwidth, the amount of data that's being transferred to some sort of central area. And again, it gets back to something that we touched on a little bit before, which is edge devices that are being closer towards the assets are getting cost effectively more powerful and you have to then, independent of the ability to deploy things into the cloud backend, need to be able to manage what you're pushing out towards the edge. And I think that's that's where sort of the rubber is going to meet the road for some of these advanced companies that say, okay, I do embrace automation, I do embrace machine learning. What does that mean for how I manage uh, the the software that's been deployed onto the edge devices that are close to my assets? Okay. Sean, I mean, where would one go for advice and how, how would you recommend uh, other manufacturers, especially uh, SMBs who don't have these sort of huge IT teams and research teams looking at these types of technologies? How, how would one get going and how do you uh, try and, and get the knowledge required to, to help you expand your sort of automation and industrial IoT capabilities? Well, I mean, quite frankly, there's, I mean, there's a couple ways. I mean, <laughs> selfishly a little bit, the, the, one of the better ways is to go find yourself an integrator and, and, and somebody who does this sort of stuff for a living. Um, you know, certainly larger organizations can can handle this uh, internally to a point. Um, you know, another avenue is, um, quite frankly, you know, work, working with other companies in your industry or fringe industries, maybe not competitors, uh, but uh, sharing best practices. Um, you know, talking to these companies who have done this before and, and, and learning from some of their uh, mistakes and, and what worked well for them. Um, and, and finally, I, you know, I recommend looking at some of these organizations that, uh, 
uh, like the, the RIA, the Robotics Institute of America, and uh, uh, there's the A3 for Advancing Automation. Um, these organizations all collect a lot of this type of data. And sorry, my light turned out there. Um, <laughs> wave and turn. There we go. Um, <laughs> uh, automated systems. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Don't always work the way that uh, you want them to, but we're you know we're we're working talking to some of these uh, trade organizations that uh, that's their sole focus is to is to is to look at what those next te technologies are coming down the road, um, and then how the you know, manufacturers can apply those. Okay, and, and Jordan, uh, any advice from yourself as to who to look for for advice and and solace? Well, I, would, I was certainly happy Sean was saying systems integrators because that's one of the things that my company does. Um, I would, however, add to that that you uh, it's always a good idea to talk within your own organization and look for pockets of people that already have some expertise, some things that uh, uh, might be sort of hidden in the organization. I, th I think a lot of uh, companies underestimate the amount of experience that their people have and that some people think that it's you know, interesting to try a new advanced analytics algorithm themselves and to see what they could do with some of the data that's lying around. We find very often going through some of the interviews that we have with people to talk about, you know, uh, value stream analysis and what they're trying to do to optimize their processes and include automation in there. Uh, we very often through the interview phase find people that actually already exist in the company that have tried some things out, maybe a little bit under the table, under the radar of what's going on with management. Um, and in addition to, uh, obviously, if you don't have those skills in-house, looking for the right trade organizations or integrating uh, partners, look into your own organization and see what you already have. Right. Tom, anything to add? Not really, I think. You, <laughs> I think Sean and Jordan covered it pretty extensively uh, and, and, and fair dues. I mean, uh, trade organizations, yeah, absolutely. Uh, going to events is, is always a good one uh, because at events, you, you're you not just seeing the, the people from the industry speak about it, but you're also there with peers very often and speak to them, as, as Sean said, not necessarily competitors, but, you know, if you can get people in similar organizations who are willing to, to share best practices, that's that's a great way to do it. Uh, yeah, I think that that's about it. There's, uh, one thing that hasn't been mentioned, I guess, is the the likes of you know online resources, the likes of even you know YouTube is is often a good place to search for some of these things. But uh, you need to obviously uh, be be aware that not everyone who's posting stuff online and, and things like that it knows what they're talking about. So you, you want to take that with a bucket of salt. Great, uh, and and something that was mentioned in an earlier show is is also don't just look in your own industry vertical look outside because other people have a lot of things that they're researching, a lot to add to, to the argument. So I, I'd like to thank my, my honored guests, my uh, Sean Dotson, uh, uh, Jordan Genesco, and Tom Raftery. Thank you very thank much you. for uh, being so interesting. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, for those who are watching, there'll be a key takeaways document that'll be available off the website uh, on production. Uh, and you can go and download that uh, at, your, uh, at your own discretion. Uh, thanks very much for listening, and we look forward to uh, talking to you again. Today, data is everywhere. For companies, it's become one of the most important resources, essential in the age of the Internet of Things. To unleash its full potential, we must transform this flood of data into useful knowledge. 
That means capturing and analyzing data from countless sources. It's a staggering challenge. That's why Siemens developed MindSphere. The cloud-based open IoT operating system so that companies of every type and size can unlock their data assets and put them to profitable use. MindSphere rapidly connects existing assets and systems of various manufacturers to gather data from a multitude of sources. Advanced analytics and applications from Siemens, our partners, and other providers transform this data into valuable knowledge. Knowledge that helps increase availability, quality, and efficiency across the value chain. Knowledge that solves problems before they occur. Knowledge that will accelerate processes, open up new levels of flexibility, and simplify decision-making. Knowledge that makes companies better. MindSphere transforms data into knowledge and knowledge into business success.